ask. So let's start back at Matthew chapter 18 and then uh, go to Ephesians chapter 4. Matthew chapter 18 and then Ephesians chapter 4. If you'll remember, we considered the last time the disciples were speaking and debating amongst themselves who was the greatest. And Jesus takes the little child and calls the little child to the midst of them and sits them down and says in verse 2, Truly I say unto you, or in verse 3, unless you become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever, in verse 5, receives such a child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me, who believe in me, to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Pretty serious. To consider what uh, what God, what the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, requires here for an offense of a little child. Now, throughout the scripture, we're actually given a number of terms whereby we as Christians are known. One of them is little children. If you remember the book of 1 John, John speaks about the, the little children. He speaks to the children. He speaks to the fathers. Um, but he is dress, addressing the level of maturity with, that is to be found within the local church. And so we had the temptations to sin, and of course we looked at uh, we looked just briefly at the parable of the lost sheep, which again is not a parable in regards to salvation. The parable of the lost sheep, there is nowhere in Scripture that you will ever find that God refers to goats or those who are unbelievers as being a sheep. It always refers to those who are believers. And so when he's speaking about the parable of the lost sheep and he says, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety and nine on the mountains and go in search of the one who went astray? So what is he talking about here? He is speaking about the sheep who has strayed off into some kind of error or who is living in a way that is not pleasing to God. And he says, so it is that when he finds it, truly I say, verse 13, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is, not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. He's still, we're, we're still on the same page here when, when the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking to his disciples. He is addressing offenses that are to be found within the group or within the gathering. Because then he goes to what is commonly considered church discipline or the passage on church discipline, Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 through verse 20. And actually, some will actually take it and they will end at verse uh, verse 18. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Or the word here is or shall have been bound. So you could read it, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be as it has already been bound in heaven, and what you loose on earth will be as though it has already been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if any two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them or in the midst of them. So as, again, as Jesus speaking about, we decide we're going to go out and, and, and Brother Gail and I, we're going to go out and we're going to go hunt coyotes. 
And so him and I are out there on the mountains all by ourselves west of town. Does that make it the church? No, it doesn't. You see, there are aspects that have to be present. One is the preaching and teaching of the word, the proclamation of truth. You have the ordinances that are regularly practiced or that are upheld on a regular basis. But here what Jesus is speaking about and he is telling us or reminding us is that wherever we gather in his name for the purpose of restoring, follow me here, for restoring the sheep that was lost, that will be done. So when a person is living in such a way that they commit an offense or an offense has been committed and that person decides to live in a way that is, that is not pleasing to God, the church then has the responsibility to go after that person to make sure that that person is now striving to please God. We are living in a way that we are not bringing a, 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 a blight or fault on the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ and on the church. Now, when we're talking about two or three being gathered together, go back again to what he says in verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, or shall have been bound in heaven. What again is he speaking of? Keeping it all in context, he's talking about offenses, right? Offenses that are within the church. So if these offenses are being caused and we are binding them or now we're not talking about like going around and binding demons and, 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 and casting spells over the door in churches and things like that. There are a lot of people that try that kind of stuff. No, what we are talking about here is a person who is, uh, let's say again, we go back to the offense here. The offense and the restoration starts and stops wherever wherever that has become public, okay? So, for example, in Matthew 18, when we are dealing with self-discipline first, this really is what we're referring to or where we need to be so that if we seek forgiveness for a particular offense, offense ABC, where does the offense stop if we ask forgiveness from God? Right there with us. So if we've asked God for forgiveness for whatever that may be that we that we are dealing with, it then doesn't have to go to somebody else. If we practiced self-discipline a lot more, you would never see church discipline within the within the body or within the congregation. So he says that person then continues they live in that particular lifestyle or they live in that particular sin whatever it may be and then it comes to somebody else's attention. So then how do we handle it? We don't get on the phone. We don't talk with somebody else. We go directly to that person. Again, what is the purpose? Keeping this entire passage in line, we are going to that person as if we are going after the one out of a hundred. This is the way that we should be responding to whatever this offense may be that we're dealing with. So if we deal with a one-on-one, so we go and we deal with that individual, we say, brother or sister, I see there's something in your life that is not bringing honor and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to be able to address it with you, and maybe I'm misunderstanding. We're trying to give this person the benefit of the doubt, but there's something that I see there. Let's deal with it so that we can be restored to one another in Christian love and be restored within the church. Now, it sounds simple, doesn't it? 
The problem is we don't like being, we don't like the word humility. We don't like being humbled. We don't like people knowing other things about us, whatever's going on in our life. So what ends up happening more times than not is the one-on-one very rarely happens. It's like this particular aspect or this particular level, step number two, sometimes just completely gets avoided because then we want to go and run over to so and so or we want to get them on the phone and we want to say, hey, this is what's going on, and I just thought I'd let you know about it so you could pray about it. <laughs> Mike? That, that's interesting on the one on one, and I think it's interesting because or we in, I guess in our culture it's easier said than done, and it has to do with relationships with each other. Sure. If we're not close to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, it's hard to correct each other or help each other when you see them go straight. If we're just all, hey, we just come to church on Sunday, you know, so-and-so is doing it, then, like you said, let's pray about it. It turns into gossip. Right. But if you really, truly love each other, you're going to go to them quietly and talk to them and deal with it. But what, what, is, what is the purpose of, of building the relationship, though? Why would that be so important in a context like this? Why would? Yes. I'd say you would do that if you have that relationship. Right, but why, why, is, why is that kind of... There we go. Because we're family. That, that, that's the purpose of a local church. The local church is, is to be able to, if, for example, in the New Testament age, when you had, well, let's, let's, go, let's go further back. Let's go back to the Old Testament. When Israel was commanded to go into the land, what were they commanded to do with all of the heathen? Wipe them out. They were to destroy them. Why? Was it because the the heathen were not as good as the Israelites? Was it because maybe their tribes were too big, or maybe what was the reason for why they were to be wiped out? Right there, so they wouldn't be corrupted by the customs and the gods of the nations that were around them. If you remember, for example, what happened with Solomon? Solomon was the one who built the beautiful temple before God. And what happened at the end of his life? His heart was swayed by the strange gods because he brought all of the, these wives in. A lot of them, yes, were political relationships that he had. And out of all of the wives that he brought, they continued to bring their gods. And after a while, they had to put, have somewhere to put them. And so his relationship with God began to break down. That's what happened with Israel. That's why you find Israel, the northern ten tribes, eventually they get taken away into captivity, never to return. And then what happens with the final tribes, the two tribes in Jerusalem? They get taken away by the Babylonians at 70 years. They're spending over there. This is what Daniel's about. And then eventually they come back and they get to rebuild. And by the time the Lord Jesus Christ shows up, about 470, 480 years later, we have a, we have a religious system that has been built for the purpose of the people to feel good about themselves. It wasn't a worship of the one true God anymore. They were doing it, yes, on the Sabbath day. They were showing up. But it was more important to the Pharisees to make sure that they were counting their steps so that they wouldn't walk more than half a mile. 
It was more important for them to have a bigger ribbon than everybody else, a ribbon of blue that went around the bottom of their, uh, of their garments. It was more important to count out, there's ten kernels of corn, nine for me, one for God. And what does Jesus call them? He says, you're nothing more than whitewashed sepulchers. You're full of dead man's bones. And so when we come into the New Testament age and the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking here and he is talking about offenses, under the rabbinical school, both, both of the rabbis both said the same thing. That was the one, of the one of the only things they actually agreed on was the number of times that you could forgive somebody. Three. That was it. Anything more than that, that person was just condemned. You could rain down curses on them. So when Peter then comes and he says later on and he says, Lord, how many times should we forgive? And Jesus says, or he says, seven times? That's pretty magnanimous on Peter's part, don't you think? I mean, the rabbis were all saying three. Here Peter's got the best rabbi. We'll just double it and add one for good measure. And the Lord says, no, 70 times seven, 490 times. 490 times, boy, that's a, that's a lot of counting. I mean, we're going to have to make sure we've all got our socks and sandals off and, and, and count and, and eventually figure it all out. No, 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 no. That's not what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying here. He is saying each offense is to be treated as though it is the first. The very first offense. Again, why? Because we are going after the one out of a hundred. Now, that doesn't mean... Somebody look up Galatians chapter 6 and read verse 1 and verse 2 for us here in just a moment. It is not because we are somehow better being in the 99 than the 1. Because Christ died for that 1 also. And so we are to chase them down so that there might be fellowship with that individual instead of just letting them loose into the world. Who is Galatians 6, 1 and 2? Mom? Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, Ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Okay, now this is not a reference. Again, brothers, if a man be overtaken in a fault, you are spiritual, restore such a one. This is not a reference to you who are spiritual in every way, far superior above this other person, you're to restore such a one. He is referring to those who are mature in that particular area of struggle. Now, we all have struggles in our life, right? We all struggle with different areas, different sins, different whatever it may be that we've got on, going on in our lives. So the question is, if we have been able to overcome a particular area within our life, how should we be interacting with, say, another brother in Christ? Or another sister in Christ. If we're spiritual in a particular area, if we have grown to the point where the Lord has helped us in that particular area, how then should we be interacting with other brothers and sisters in the congregation? Helping them through that problem. Helping them through that. Helping them through that to know what they feel and, and what they need to do. Absolutely. Why? Again, verse 2 says what? Bear each other's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. 
You see, this is part of the reason, going back to Mike's point, this is the reason why we have a relationship within the church, why there should be a familial a familial relationship, because you and I need each other to be able to make it through the Christian walk. Say that again, familial, sounds like family. Familial, yeah. yeah unity. Unity, absolutely. And so if we are struggling, struggling through a particular area, and we've said this before and we've used this illustration if somebody comes up and they say how you doing we put on a a fake smile and we say oh we're doing fine how are you and you know what we're doing we're just keeping things shallow because we really number one we're either struggling with something ourselves, or because we're not willing to step up and help to bear that other person's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ now Here's part of the issue, though. When the Lord is talking about the the 100 sheep and the 99 who are left and one goes away, does he say what the sin is? He doesn't say what it is, does he? What about in Galatians chapter 6? Does he say what the sin is? No. He says, you who are spiritual, you who have... Are, you who have been able to get through this with the help of the Holy Spirit, help restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Tempted in what area? The area that the offense has been caused. In other words, we don't want to see the same offense being repeated over and over and over again. Now, there is a big difference, though, if there is a sin. We have a sin in the area of struggle of discipleship, and we'll call this what the Bible calls it, a besetting sin. It's important for us when we are speaking of sin that we understand that there are, I believe in my study of scripture, that there is no, I'm going to be careful how I put this, there are, as far as we are concerned, there should not be any degrees of sin. In other words, if my sin, if my only sin was to tell a lie, did that lie still have to or require Jesus to die on the cross? Yes. So if that lie put Jesus on the cross, what about somebody who walks in and we see they've got prison tattoos all over them and they have served their time for maybe being a bank robber? What do we do with that person if they walk into our church? Welcome them. Where to welcome them? Where to because is their sin any greater than mine or yours? No. Now we understand that there are some things that no, we we're just for example that bank robber. We're never going to allow that person to become a church treasurer. Okay, that's that's just the better part of prudence or wisdom that we don't put somebody in a position where they could possibly reoffend. However, when we are dealing with besetting sins, there are two groups of people. There are those who, number one, desire to see change within their life and are seeking forgiveness and are seeking to be changed. They are seeking to have their minds renewed by the Holy Spirit of God. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And then there are those who are happy. They are content within that sin. And there's nothing you're going to be able to do to persuade them that what they are doing is sin. 
Two groups of people, even within biblical Christianity, there are going to be some maybe who have never been taught, and they're going to think, well, it's okay, because the more I sin, the more grace will abound. Paul says, no, that's not the way that works. We don't sin more so that we get more grace. The question is, with a besetting sin or with any kind of sin, is this. Are we changing? How do we know if we're changing? What's way that we could find out whether we are changing or not? By other people. By other people. But what would that entail? Give me an illustration, Doug. So I'm going to say that there is a difference between a family, an earthly family, and a spiritual family when it comes when it comes to biblical forgiveness and offenses, because the world doesn't know what it means to be forgiven by Christ. Yeah. However, to, to point back though, Matthew chapter 5 is very clear though that if we are living in such, or we should be living in such a way that the world even sees the salt and light that we are and they glorify our Father who is in heaven by the works that we do, Matthew 5, 16. However, if, if, if I'm struggling in a particular area, in a spiritual area, and I'm struggling, say, to read my Bible, or I'm struggling with, with being spiritually depressed or discouraged within my life, I'm not going to go to somebody that doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ and, you know, say, hey, listen, I'm struggling with spiritual depression. Can you help me? <clears throat> They're not going to be able to help. They're probably going to scratch their head thinking, maybe this guy needs to be committed or something to an insane asylum. Who should I be able to go to? Another brother or sister in Christ. And say, hey, I'm struggling in a particular area. Would you be willing to help me? Even if it means that person is only able to pray with you. You see, a lot of people, we, we've come to the point in Christian churches where we are sending everybody out to Christian psychologists or Christian counselors instead of bearing one another's burdens within the body of Christ. I mean, if you're struggling in a particular area, going to a counselor really is not going to be beneficial to you when we are here to be able to help one another. Again, we are seeking after the one. Sometimes it may be two or three at a time. But the point is, are we going after them and how hard are we going after them? Are we truly willing to forgive? Have we forgiven 490 times? Or do we treat each time as do we treat each time as though it's the first time, or are we treating that offense as though, well, I remember what you did so long ago? I mean, it's easy for all of us to do. I'm sure we've all been there at some point or another. And when we're talking about practical applications, I, I want to encourage you here because when, when Jesus is speaking at the end of Matthew chapter 18 and he gives the example of the, the unforgiven servant or the servant who does, is not willing to forgive, again, we're still dealing with the same thing. We're dealing with an offense. We're dealing with going after the one, right? And so this person 
is forgiven much. They're forgiven an amount that is absolutely impossible for this man to be able to earn in any in, in any year whatsoever. In fact, his entire lifetime, he can't work off this amount of money. This is why Jesus uses the terminology that he does. 10,000 talents would have been something that would have been beyond the ability for a worker to be able to make in an entire year. To give you an idea, one penny was one day's wage. One full day's wage. That would have been sun up till sundown. You worked for one penny. Do you remember the Lord Jesus Christ when he says, he goes, the master goes into the marketplace and he says, um, come and work for me at the end of the day, I'll give you a penny. Great, that's a full day's wage, it's a fair amount. And then he goes a few hours later and he says, hey, why aren't you working? Whatever is right, I will give you. You come and work for me at the end of the day, I will give you what is right. And he goes all the way up until the 11th hour. There's one hour left before sundown. And he goes into the marketplace and he says, why are you standing here? You've been lazy all day long. And they said, nobody has hired us. He says, well, I tell you what, how about you come with me? You go work in my fields and I'll give you what is right. They get to the end of the hour and he starts with the last and he gives them how much? A penny. penny. And he gives every one of them a penny and he gets to the very end, the ones who had worked all day long in the heat of the sun. And how much do they get? One penny. What was the purpose of the parable? Was the purpose of the parable to tell everybody, well, you can hire everybody you want to and just give them one day's wage, regardless of what they're working? No. The purpose of the parable was Jesus is saying, I can do what is what I am what I I can do what I want to with what I have. In other words, I'm forgiving one just as I am forgiving another. I'm forgiving them equally. So this is where we're at with the unforgiving servant. He's been forgiven for a massive amount of money. And then he goes out and he finds a servant that would take, or a fellow servant, it would have taken about 100 days and he could have paid off this debt. And what does he do? He grabs him by the collar and he shakes him and he beats him and he throws him in prison. He says, you have to pay me what you owe me. And what does the master do? He comes back and he says, you wicked servant. I forgave you an unforgivable debt and yet you're not willing to forgive somebody for this, listen, this tiny offense. Now, you and I, if we're not careful, we will seek to extend forgiveness to other people and we will tend to do that when we are using our own sins as a categorization. We're good at that as humans. I mean, look at children when they grow up. Did you clean your room? Did you pick on your sister? Did you pick on your brother? Yeah, but he... And we do the same thing as believers. And there are times that if we're not careful, we are forgetting how much the unforgivable or the the amount of debt that we owe to the Lord Jesus Christ, if you take everything that you owe to him and you were to put it in this great big basket, the offense that somebody has caused to you or has done to you in some way is, how does that actually stack up against what God has forgiven you and I for? Now do we see the difference? 
You see, we, we can hold on to this one particular area or this one sin or this one whatever it is that we are dealing with and we will be willing to allow that one sheep to continue going astray because we have not been willing to forgive them in totality like God has forgiven us. I mean, think about think back in your life and think about the different sins maybe that you've been involved with and maybe still involved with. How many of those sins or which of those sins would you want to know that Christ hasn't forgiven you for? I wouldn't want any of my sins to be unforgiven. I'd want God to forgive all of my sins, which is what he does. This again is the purpose. So look at Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And somebody read verse 32 for us. forgive certain sins? Help me out here. Are we told to only forgive certain sins? No. no what are we told to forgive? As, as Christ forgave you. As Christ forgave me. Now let's continue in verse in chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore be what? What does your Bible say? Imitators. What does your say? Followers. Followers of Christ. And, and, and Christ forgave. Isn't that the purpose why he came? He came to be able to atone for the wrath of God, which we rightly deserved, correct? Again, we have to put these things into perspective. This is what Christ came for. He didn't just come because he was a God of love. He was also a God of wrath. And he had to atone for the sin. Otherwise, you and I would never be able to make it into heaven. And so when we forgive one another, we then are to imitate or to follow Christ. You want to talk about a hard thing to forgive. The Apostle Peter has been following the Lord Jesus Christ for three and a half years. The Lord Jesus Christ tells Peter, he says, before the cock crows twice tonight, you will deny me three times. Oh no, not me. Not me. Before the night is over, Peter has denied. He has even called down curses from heaven. That is the terminology that is used there. He says, may God curse me if I even knew the man. And the Lord Jesus Christ is standing there on trial in the court <coughs> And he looks over and he sees Peter and Peter sees Jesus. And then Jesus goes to the cross to die for Peter's sin that he just committed. Did, you, did Peter deserve forgiveness? No. Peter didn't deserve to be forgiven. And yet, what do we find in John chapter 21? What happens? The Lord Jesus Christ comes and he's on the beach. Peter says, I go fishing. In fact, he takes six other disciples with him. Most of them had never even been fishermen. 
and he takes them with him. Why? Because any time you're involved in some kind of sin or some kind of an offense, as a general rule, you will take other people with you even though they are not involved. You will involve their lives. And so the Lord Jesus Christ, he, they come ashore, there's fish there, and he feeds them, and he looks over at Peter. Now, if it was you and I, in our day and age, and in our thoughts, we might say now, Peter, you low-down scoundrel, I think you and I need to have a talk. What does, Peter, what does Jesus do with Peter, though? Do you love me? Do you love me? Well, yeah, Lord, you, you know I like you. That's the word he uses. Yeah, I like you. I phileo you, your friend. Then feed my lambs. And he asked him a second time, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me to the point where you're willing to lay down your life for me? Self-sacrificial love that says there's no more Peter in the picture. There's just a picture of Jesus Christ. Well, Lord, you, you know that you're a friend. I mean, you know, I really like you. You're a great guy and all, and you're a great rabbi. And, and, and you know, I just can't bring myself to say that. And then Jesus asks him the same time, or the third time, and this time he uses Peter's word. And he says, Peter, are you really a friend? Do you really like me that much? And Peter is offended. Peter is not offended because Jesus asked him three times. He, he's offended because Jesus resorts. He drops down to Peter's level. And he says, Peter, do you really like me? Lord, you know all things. Yeah, that's true. Feed my sheep. You know what he's saying here, Peter? You are forgiven. Now, what does Peter turn around and do? Same thing we do. Well, Lord, what about John? What about that guy? I mean... Lord, I'm not the only one that, that, that offended you. I'm not the only one that denied you. I wasn't the only one that didn't show up at the foot of the cross. Yes, but if he tarries until I return, in other words, his life is in my hands, not in yours. So Peter, follow me. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ is asking us to do, to imitate him. And if we can picture in our minds the Lord Jesus Christ laying aside his glory, being willing to come down to this earth to a place he didn't have to come, to a people that he didn't need, to a world that he didn't need, even though he created it for his glory and for our good and for our benefit, and then went to the cross to be killed by the same people who were supposed to love him, and then from the cross says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I am glad that the Lord Jesus Christ didn't hang on the cross and say, Lord, forgive all of the lies. Because Jesus then would have not forgiven all the other sins that had taken place. What does he say next? Therefore be imitators of God. Somebody read verse 2. 5-2. Ephesians 5-2. Why 
walk in love. I'll be honest, this is hard to do. Because walking in love isn't just a, like we have in third grade class where everybody passed out a Valentine's little card to every other kid in the class and said, I love you on it. No, this is a love that says, I am willing to follow Christ to the point where if I need to, I will be willing to lay down my life for you. I will be willing to live in such a way that you will see Christ in me. Because of what Christ has forgiven me of, I can forgive you. Now again, that means we have to go back though to the question, do we forgive and forget? No, there's no biblical passage that says we forgive and forget. We forgive and choose not to throw that back in that person's face again. Just as Christ does with us in regards to forgiveness. I mean, how many of you have been saved over 40 years? Anybody? Okay, over 50 years. Okay. You have been. Over 50 years this year. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Actually, 50 years in March. Can you imagine what it would be like to get down on your face and wonder maybe why God's not blessing you? And, 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 and out of the stillness you hear, well, Jean-Paul, 50 years ago, you did this. You and I would be without hope if God did that to us. What sin are you talking about? I am forgiven you. I have forgiven you. Look at that cross for just a moment. Now, some of us are older than others here, but none of us were here 2,000 years ago when Christ died on that cross. That means that every sin that you and I have ever committed, past tense, will commit today or will commit tomorrow it's either been forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ and by his death on the cross or it was not forgiven. What sins do you not want to be forgiven? I want all of mine forgiven. And because everything was in the future, we have to look back and we see Ephesians chapter 1 and he says, from before the foundations of the world, we were chosen in him. Why? To bring honor and glory to the praise of his glory. It's stated three times in chapter 1 alone. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. I saw this little video. I don't know why it even popped up on my feed. But it was, uh, sometimes there's these couples and they do funny little things, you know, about how married couples treat one another and with the kids and things like that. There was nothing, there was nothing vulgar about this video, but in the video it talked about how two couples handle things when they're angry with each other, but still in love. And so one of the things that happens is the husband comes by and he's angry, but the wife hands him a cup of coffee. And he takes a cup of coffee and off he walks. And then they do something else. And it's all with this attitude like, well, I don't have to, but I'm going to do it. 
And so the last one is the woman is on the phone and she is talking to her mother and she's getting ready to sneeze and all of a sudden this hand shoots into the picture and it's the husband holding a tissue and he holds it up to her nose while she blows her nose. And it says, the things we do for those we love. (laughs) (laughs) And you know, sometimes we can get that kind of attitude, can't we? We can get that kind of response towards one another like, well, I really don't feel like it, but I'm going to anyway. And I'm glad the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't treat us that way. I'm glad he completely forgives us and he lays, there's no sin that's laid to our charge. I mean, we talked about it this morning, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. After Paul just finished telling the Roma believers all the bad things that I'm not supposed to be doing, that's exactly what I'm doing. And I'm glad he didn't give a list. And then he says, all the good things that I'm supposed to be doing, that's not what I'm doing. Who will deliver me? And then he says, but there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You know what he did? He went from despair to full-blown forgiveness. And he recognizes this and he tells the Roman believers, do you not understand That no matter what sin it is that you're caught up in, no matter what it is that you have done in your life, there is no condemnation if you are in Christ Jesus. And if there's no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus, then how can I respond to you in a way that is not forgiving? I mean, after all, we've already seen the verses. Aren't we to imitate Christ? Aren't we to walk in love? So that means that there's a struggle between a husband and a wife. There's a struggle between the kids or the grandkids or the the parents or even with a colleague. How should we handle those things practically? Sometimes it's a matter of sitting down and having a conversation and saying, hey, you know, I don't know if you realize this, but you offended me. You offended me greatly. You offended me immensely, whatever it may be. But because the Lord Jesus Christ has forgiven me of my sins, even the deepest, darkest secrets that are within my heart, I am required by the scripture to forgive you, whether I feel like it or not, because forgiveness has nothing to do with feelings. Forgiveness is simply biblical. Look what he says in verse, go back to chapter 4, verse 20. And we'll conclude with these verses this evening. He talks about the way that the Gentiles walked in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God. These are a bad group of people. And he says, but that is not the way you learn Christ. Verse 20. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in who? Jesus. I am the way, Jesus said, the truth and the life. Assuming that you have heard of him as the truth is in Jesus, verse 22, to put off your old self. Anybody here walk perfectly before the Lord Jesus Christ every single day of your life? I sure don't. So we have what is called put off and put on. 
The put off, put on principle is to put off the things of the flesh and to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. The easiest way to do this for forgiveness, well, I'm not going to use the word easy, but the most biblical way to do this is to put off things like unforgiveness and put on forgiveness. Put off bitterness and anger and wrath and malice and clamor and evil speaking and put on love. Put on the fruit of the Spirit. Walk in love. Imitate Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love holds no grudge. Love bears no evil. Love doesn't do any of these things. Love says, I will love you as Christ has loved me. You and I were not lovable before we came to Christ. Not truly lovable. And, verse 23, be renewed in the Spirit to put on, verse 24, the new self created how? After the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Here's what you and I should remember. When we are dealing with forgiveness, when we are dealing with living a life with one another, we are striving to go after that one sheep that was lost. When we find that one sheep, we are to forgive them as we have been forgiven. We are to treat them as we have been treated. We are to be willing to lay down our lives for them as Christ laid down his life for us. We are to imitate Christ in doing all of these things because that's what he calls us to do. He doesn't call us to an easy path. Uh, th th there, there is no easy path. There is no bed of roses when it comes to following Christ. It's hard. It's a slog. How many of you served in the military? Okay. Do you remember going to boot camp? Mm -hmm. Yep. Do you remember those first couple of weeks when the drill sergeant came in and tucked you into bed and sung a lullaby to you? <laughs> when you got out and you... D don't, don't laugh. His, his lullaby was a little... Yeah, yeah, we won't repeat the lullabies. <laughs> no, don't do that. He didn't do those things, did he? You were there to become a soldier. You were there to become a military member and it required toughness. It required being willing to say, no, you can't call home. You can't call and talk to mom and dad. You can't call the wife. You can't call whatever. You can write letters, but we're going to keep you here. We're going to, be, we're going to keep you secluded so that we can make you into what we want to make you. When you go on the marches, the marches aren't easy. The boots aren't comfortable. Anybody do any big marches? You did marches in the army, didn't you? Were you allowed to wear your fuzzy bear slippers? <laughs> Only if you wanted to do a million push-ups. Exactly. And, and you, you don't go in for that purpose. You don't go in because you think it's going to be easy. Folks, you and I need to remember, Al was talking about this this morning. If there is tribulation time that is coming, we need to be prepared for it. And we are not going to be prepared for it if we think we can walk the Christian road in fuzzy bear slippers. I know that's not easy to hear. It's not easy to say. But if we are to exhibit to the world how God has forgiven us, we need to be willing to do it to others. The things that we do and the things that we extend forgiveness to others for may be the only time that they actually see the Lord Jesus Christ at work in our lives. Are there any questions?
Mike. Uh, not a question. Um, I was talking about walking the store that I in school. Yes. And uh, um, obviously she was uh, um, feeling emotional because she had Thanksgiving. Yes, but you guys, Manny, had some conversation with him over the phone or something. And some things that was happening in Cuba with the, with the missionaries and so on. You probably know a little more. But she had brought that to my attention and she was when we were talking about tribulation mm-hmm. and what they're going through that some of these people are you know, going hungry so on because of the oppression that's happening and they're constantly having to move around and their kids are in danger of the state taking them away and all that stuff. So um, so we were just kind of having a conversation about that and concerning tribulation being read. And uh, I was relating to her story growing up overseas. And I remember living in Mannheim, Germany. I was probably in third grade or second grade. And it was Saturday, and we did the grocery shopping on Saturday at the commissary. Cars all pulled up, and we'd all jump out and say, hey, I'll, I'll carry your groceries up to your house when people would pull up and they'd give you a tip. But I don't know why, but I recall having to stop. Wow. We, how great it is that we can go to a store, have bags of food brought up to our house, and how lucky we are. And just that thought just hit me. And then I used to always think, why do we have it so good when we don't have to? And then obviously as you grow up, you see the world and go to different places. We take it so for granted that we have wonderful Thanksgiving dinner, a feast. And it's not true in most of the world. If you go around the world, it's just not true. Especially if you're a person of faith, they definitely try to prevent you from having those things. It's real. And it can be real here. It's perspective. What, what, what is our perspective on, on life? Do we think we're owed the things or we somehow deserve the things that we get? I mean, when Brother Manny was here and he shared with us, um, you know, if, if, if you don't agree with the government that your child at eight, year old, at eight years old can change to become something that they weren't born and you disagree, they'll come and take your kids away at eight. Yeah, you know, I mean, we think we live in a progressive or people want us to be progressive, we, we haven't seen a lot of things that the rest of the world has. I mean, you think about what's going on in places like Iran right now. There are people that are actually being put to death simply for protesting. China right now, big protest. China. And then in Canada, they have dealing with the Well, if you, if you see what's going on, for example, with the Uyghur population in western China Um, you know what's interesting is that within the Uyghur they are predominantly Muslims but they are actually coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in droves right now because of the persecution many of them being forcibly removed from their homes and being put in camps you know we again would we be willing to forgive if somebody came into our home and took away our family for something like that? Would we be willing to forgive assaults against our family? Would we be willing to forgive a government that, or people in the government who 
allow our families to starve to death? Again, it's all perspective, and yet down through 2,000 years of church history, that's exactly what Christians, true Christians, have done. They've forgiven those who oppressed them and persecuted them. And if we have a time of persecution come to America, if we can't be will, if we're not willing to forgive those who are in our midst in church or in our families, if we're not willing to forgive that, we're going to struggle to forgive when they come and want to beat on us. Again, perspective is important. But it's kind of hard when we are called to also not just, we're not just called to do good, we're called to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's tough. Anybody else? Well, thank you for listening. Thank you for coming tonight. Hope you have a blessed week. Get your snow shovels ready. Probably going to need them by tomorrow night or Tuesday morning. Maybe. We'll see. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you that we are called to forgive one another because you have forgiven us. You have forgiven us of the 10,000 talents, an amount that we could never earn in any way, shape, or form. Help us to be willing to look at our brothers and sisters and say, just as Christ has forgiven me for an unforgivable amount, so too I need to be willing to forgive you. Lord, we have some who have been here in the past and maybe have left, maybe they have been offended. Help us to seek to be an encouragement to them and to remind them of what we're called to do. But Lord, we also recognize that there are some who may not truly be believers. We are to pray for their salvation. We are to pray that you will restore them and you will change their hearts. Change our hearts, Father, and bring revival to us. As we go from here this evening, may we be encouraged throughout this week to love you with all of our being and to love others. In Jesus' name, amen.